Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So today we're here with Stephen Rowley. So Stephen is our manager and senior nurse for haematology at UCLH. He's also clinical director for the Association of Safe Aseptic Practice, overseeing ANTT, which is, that's why he's here today to talk about that. Being our manager, when we had the idea initially for uh, creating a podcast, I went to him and I said, you know, I've got this idea, I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure, um, we want to start putting podcasts out there for haematology. And uh, he straight away was very encouraging and said, yeah, go for it, I think it's a great idea, which really gave us the confidence to think, yeah, let, let's do it then. So, yeah, so thanks for that, Steve. No, my pleasure. I think the three of you have done a, a great job. These are really proving popular. Thank you very much. Well, you sort of said ANTT, mm-hmm. Sonia, and I guess the first question should be, what is ANTT, Steve? ANTT, in a nutshell, is what NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, uh, defined it as, which is a specific type of aseptic technique uh, with a unique uh, practice framework to it. So in other words, it's a, a rule book, if you like, on how to do aseptic technique safely and efficiently. And when we talk about asepsis, what do you mean when, you, when we talk about it? Well, it's a good question because this is a very, very historically confused area, mm. which was why I uh, investigated this many years ago and, and continue to be involved in it. And right at the heart of it is confusion around definitions and terminology, uh, which is very variable. If you look in any dictionary, just a common garden dictionary, Uh, The definition of asepsis is pretty much universal. So it means free from pathogenic or, in other words, harmful organisms that can cause infection. So that's generally what people mean by asepsis. There's been a lot of work over the years to prevent infection in healthcare. And is this still a problem or is is sort of invasive procedures done by healthcare professionals, is this still something we should be worried about? Yeah, we, we should absolutely be worried about it and we should be more concerned now than we've ever been. And there's a number of reasons for that. The most topical reason would be the concern around AMR, antimicrobial resistance, that uh, there's a lot of talk about over the last few years. Um, there's been a lot of groups commissioned at high levels and across the NHS and other healthcare areas and arguably a little tangible change in the important things like reducing antibiotic usage. Where ANTT fits into this is, yes, we absolutely have to focus on reducing the antibiotic usage and uh, reducing uh, potential for resistance. But when you look at the worst case scenarios being predicted for how how many millions of deaths this could potentially cause over the next 50 years, the onus has to be put on preventing people getting infection in the first place. So the real question is, are we doing that? Especially given the fact that we work in very well-developed healthcare settings and have all the things really available to us to address this problem, the question is, are we doing everything that we can and should be doing every day when there is an interaction between a staff member doing a clinical procedure on a patient to protect them from getting an infection in the first place? And I think the honest answer is has, has to be a big fat no. I think there are a number of things that we can do. I think perspective helps. And let, let me just put a kind of an analogy uh, on the table. Uh, when I lecture in various places at home and abroad, I always ask a question. And I ask the audience, usually to warm them up a little bit, I'll ask them uh, who's had resuscitation training. 
and everyone puts their hands up. And then you ask them to put their hands down if you haven't used it in the last year. And pretty much wherever you are, 97% of people will put their hands down and you're left with 3%. Then you ask a, a different question and you say, who's had aseptic technique training? in the no last one. year <laughs> and, and everybody in that audience given the, the subject matter of why they've come is doing procedures and you ask who's had training in the last year and nobody puts their hands up and then you say well who's used it and everyone puts their hands up so it's a complete reverse now obviously that's not to say we shouldn't be investing in CPR <laughs> training but it really begs the question why aren't we investing more training in something as critical a competency as aseptic technique an aseptic technique is probably the most critical and commonly performed competency in healthcare, we would say. It's, the, it's the, one of the few competencies that every day has potential to cause harm to patients that, we all, that we're all delivering, often at high speed mm. in pressured environments. Yeah, multiple times a day yeah. you're, you're using this. And one of the questions we often get asked is, well, haven't things improved? Why is this still a problem? Are you sure it's still a problem? Are we looking for more things though now yeah. than we were? Well, we're not, and that's the concern because uh, there's a perception that the infection control area of care is uh, something that was improved on when there was lots of targets around it, and now we shouldn't really be focusing on it. And we would say the exact opposite. If you actually looked what happened when the, the Labour government were last in, and there was a lot more targets around achieving infection prevention, and you actually look what happened, yes, they were successful at reducing some well-chosen organisms like MRSA, Clostridium difficile. But the National Audit Office that looked at these figures pre and post demonstrated that yes, they came down, but the overall impact on all hospital-acquired infection or, or healthcare-acquired infection was static mm. and hadn't changed at all despite all that evidence. So what that tells you is that we can improve things when we put our minds to it, but we didn't learn the lessons of what worked and apply that across the board. And central to that, we believe, is this competency of, of aseptic technique. The importance of hand washing in healthcare has been known for hundreds of years. Are you saying that the same sort of battles still have to be won in terms of actually changing practice at the minute? Yeah, I think um, the hand washing point is a good one. All the evidence would show you that hand hygiene is still around 50% compliant when you look at all the big studies. The challenge for aseptic technique is much greater than that because there's six, seven or eight components that you want staff to do every time. So if, you, so if we can only achieve 50% on something that's had as much investment as hand hygiene has, then you really mustn't underestimate the challenge of achieving aseptic technique. If you went into an organization that was doing asepsis for an IV procedure well, and one that was maybe doing averagely, what might actually look different when you look at what the administering nurse is doing? Are these big things that you observe, or is it the small stuff that can make a difference? Well, the small stuff can certainly make a difference. So one of the most common failures we would see in IV therapy practice isn't particularly related to the science of aseptic technique, but it's certainly part of it and that would be how staff scrub an IV hub or port. Mm -hmm. So this again is the last line of defence isn't it, that little bit of plastic membrane between often atypical dirty dynamic environments like hospitals or homes wherever the care setting is and the patient's bloodstream and there's very very good evidence that staff routinely don't clean IV hubs properly and there's actually some very good evidence on how to clean an IV hub properly. You need to use the right solution. 
use friction and do it for the right time and allow it to dry. And the timing, isn't it? That's yeah. always the issue. And you routinely see this fail. So that's a kind of a nuance of aseptic technique in IV therapy, which we would commonly, commonly see have a higher failure rate as 70%. And what evidence is the 30 seconds to scrub it than the 15 seconds? So there's good evidence. There's lots of uh, proper empirical reviews looking at the different time scales. And the evidence is generally settled on somewhere between 10 and 15 seconds. And that is what most big stakeholder guidance says internationally. So Steve, you initiated ANTT. You've embedded it and you've been doing this for a number of years now. So where did this idea come from and how did you get it you know, to where it is at the moment, which is well, international now, isn't it? Yeah. So thanks, Sonia, for reminding me that I've been doing this for a very long time. Um, years and years and years. Yeah, I mean, yeah if, if not decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did I get the idea? So it actually came to me before I was in the healthcare profession. I was a patient and when I was around sort of 14 to 17. So for about three or four years, I was in and out of hospital quite a bit. And there was nothing particularly serious, but it did require quite a, quite a lot of hospital time. And I ended up having surgery at Papworth Hospital, which is a chest hospital. I remember going in and out of this hospital, and it had a few different sites. And I started to take an interest in the different approaches the staff had me. It probably came from an anxiety mm. of, of seeing people come up to me and access my central line in one way and then go to a different ward or, or maybe even be in the same bed on the same ward and a different member different of staff nurse, comes yeah. and does something different. So that, I think, was the spark. But obviously it didn't resonate too much with me because I was a patient. I then started doing voluntary work a few years later at Papworth and saw this further. And at the time I was developing an interest in going into nursing, so it you can see why it maybe sparked a, a chord. At the same time, I was doing some part-time work with a friend of mine who runs a chemical company, and they do a lot of lab work. So I was doing some very basic lab duties part-time and saw that they did this kind of approach too, but obviously for different reasons, not on patients. At that point, I probably sadly, I should have been probably doing more interesting things at the age of 19, but uh, did a little bit of re research around it, uh, knowing I was going into nursing as well, and, and realised that the literature wasn't as straightforward as one would imagine it to be. I expected to find the answers in the literature, and all I found was lots of questions, and, and what was immediately apparent was the huge variance and ambiguity around the subject of aseptic technique, which could be described with 20 or different terms. You know, sterile technique, clean technique, non-touch technique, medical asepsis, surgical asepsis. I could go on and on. And what was obvious is they were kind of talking about the same thing in different ways, and people had very different subjective beliefs to that. And this was all just pouring out the literature, even for somebody who wasn't that well-trained at the time to read uh, that kind of literature well. The, a lot of the terms that were being used, and that I saw used in the labs and used on the wards interchangeably, didn't actually even make sense because as a, as a layman, which was probably a strength then, I just went to a common dictionary and said, well, it's not sterile because you can't achieve sterility in the air because there are organisms in the air. So it quickly came down to, well, why, why isn't technique just called this? And I came up with the name aseptic non-touch technique. So that's where it was born. And then, of course, I went into nurse training. And in those days, you know, with Florence Nightingale, I think she was in my class we didn't do so much college time in those days, and we pretty much a different placement every three months. 
So I saw this phenomenon played out every time I went to a different placement. I'd have these these nursing Are they staff. Not even yeah. <laughs> and they, yeah. And they would and they would people were very religious about it. People would have a very set idea on what a septic technique or or ward they might call it sterile technique and where we betide you if you called it anything different or tried to do it in a different way. And then you'd go to the next placement, which might even just be down the corridor on the same floor of the same hospital. And it was like walking into a different world. And, and it would be, oh, no, we don't do it like that. Who taught you that? We don't yeah. do that way. I think we've all had that experience, yeah. haven't we, early on? Yeah, probably about halfway through my training when I was probably a little bit too cocky for my own good. And you? I... I <laughs> felt the need to sit one of the ward sisters down who wow. had a quite... What band were you then? If you, if well, you... I was a student. You were a student now? I was a pre-graduate, yeah. yeah. So I wasn't a band at all. <laughs> and uh, I sat down with this sister who did have a reputation as being quite fierce and quite old-fashioned, and I thought it would be okay to explain to her why I thought they kind of had it a bit wrong on, on the ward and the way she was insisting her team practiced aseptic technique, I think they called it something very, very different, was, was really a waste of money and a waste of time and possibly putting patients at risk. And the lesson, of course, I learned was <laughs> don't do that <laughs> as a student. Uh, just wait and, and get through because, of course, the rest of that placement was quite tough after that. And I was probably l lucky to come out the other end of it. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it, yeah. it's always been an interest and it just kind of resonated and always has. So that was the, right. the seeds for ANTT. Was it the language element of it and then also the practice? Like, you did you already, I mean, it sounds like you yeah. talked about the language before, but yeah. had you figured out the practice of what you thought might be better ways of, I had of, of managing? figured Fields. out the language more first because yeah. that was what I was able to kind of take charge of, if you like. I could, I could research that myself and it was yeah. very, very easy, as it is today, to research key terms and understand that the language was a problem. Mm. And it, even then, maybe subconsciously, but you know, all consciously, it was obvious that something that is a critical safety procedure should have a single language. And there's a problem if everyone's calling it different things, because mm. if people can't even agree on what something's called and how it's taught, then it's almost certainly going to impact on how it's practiced. And to me, that just seems And mad. research, I guess, as well. Yeah. Like, you can't compare like for like yeah. by any means, can you? Yeah. No, you wouldn't be able to find yeah. it, would you, if it's all called different things? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a bit like driving a car. Everyone can drive a car who, who's done their lessons and tests and so on. But if there were no rules on how we should then drive, uh, we could all drive a car independently, but get us all together, it'd be chaos, it'd be a car crash. There should be rules, just like a highway code, there should be rules. Yeah. There should be a standard way of talking about things and teaching things and doing things. So it was terminology first, and then seeing how the terminology was influencing variability in practice as well. And it became very clear to me that there was a very, very important connection between the two. After I trained, I worked at Addenbrooke for a while and didn't do too much with the idea then. Well, you're learning to be a nurse. Yeah, and then yeah. Uh, after a few years, I went to Great Ormond Street and I'd gone into a, a specialty haematology, which I'm still in today, where there's a, quite a, a lot of a clinical procedures, invasive procedures, an awful lot of IV drugs going into big central lines, which are a big risk to the patient, as well as various wound issues and, and so on. So when I got to Great Ormond Street, an opportunity arose because I could see that there were some issues there. And it wasn't that practice was poor, 
I think practice was very good. This was great Ormond Street and it was a fantastic place to work. But what I did notice was it was very, very convoluted. Every single IV drug, and there was very many, many, as you can imagine, working on a paediatric bone marrow transplant unit. Every single procedure, no matter how simple, required two nurses. And they literally had what they called then a sterile nurse, which yeah. of course is not possible, and a dirty nurse. And you would literally, the dirty nurse's role was to support the so-called sterile nurse, a bit like a scrub nurse would a surgeon doing brain surgery, which seems rather silly because pretty much 90% of the administration of drugs would go through hanging burette. And then all you would do in terms of administrating the drugs would be to add your drug that had been mixed up into the existing burette. So you're adding to a closed system. So right. it's pretty well protected. Yeah. And yet... You need two nurses to do that. Yeah, exactly. So the dirty nurse's job was to literally hold oh. the burette with two hands. <laughs> okay. So somebody could put a, a needle through a bung. And I was, I was thinking, that's just crazy. Yeah. And, and they were wearing sterile gloves and a lot of PPE for this. So, so that was actually the tipping point. And I went to see the chief nurse, who was particularly approachable. Oh, good. So, and you were, say, a D grade then, like a band I, five? In those time. days, I was a, an E grade. An E grade. I observed that the hospital had a pretty progressive and approachable chief nurse. Mm. And I chanced my arm one day and went to see her, invited myself to see her, and she welcomed me along and probably wondered what I was, had to say. And I said, I think I could save a lot of money here and tidy up a lot of practice and improve on this area. And she, to her credit, said, fantastic, but you've got a problem. And I said, well, what's that? She said, all that ritual is really believed in by our senior infection control nurse called Susan McQueen. And Susan McQueen was quite revered and a little fierce too. So I went along to see Sue. I said, well, I understand that you're the one who insists on the sterile gloves and the double. And she, and she said, no, absolutely not. She says, it drives me mad. Uh, we really need to do something about it. And I've worked with Sue in various ways ever since. She was a fantastic support for early ANTT. And that gave me an opportunity to, for the first time, implement ANTT across a large service, so we, we chose the cancer services there to implement this. So take the idea I'd had before coming into nursing and implement it in a proper service. And we did that, and it went very well. And just as we were approaching the end of that, I left and came to University College London Hospital. How many trusts are using it? Is this the only kind of technique there is now to use? The simple thing is if you were to challenge somebody to go and find a off-the-shelf, comprehensively defined package for aseptic technique, ANTT is the only one that exists. What's really, really exciting for us is that we've just completed a national survey, which we did via the Freedom of Information process. We researched every single trust in England, and we've had pretty much about a 92% response rate and we've demonstrated that 82% of trusts stipulate ANTT as their single standard aseptic technique that they can demonstrate by audit and education. And the reason I kind of phrase it like that is that's the requirement in the Healthcare Social Act, which all organisations are obliged to meet legally, and that's something that CQC will police and, and inspect on now and again. So. The progress has been fantastic because 
15 years ago, the answer to that question would have been there is no standard and it would have been a complete mismatch. And in fact, that was the first survey I ever did was probably 15 or so years ago. And we looked at it, it wasn't as big a survey and it wasn't as well done, but it was just a mismatch. Everyone was calling practice every different things and it looked like different things. So that is a huge, huge foundation for this area going forward. What ANTT has done is provide the foundation for organisations to improve practice, to improve education, and really importantly, to actually research practice and improve further. But it was, it was, a, it was a prerequisite that was badly needed, and um, I'm really proud to have uh, been involved in that. Yeah. So how, how did it get from zero to 82%? I'm interested. Yeah, that's a, How did you promote this? How did you get yeah. it out there? Well, that's also tested me to the you know, scores and scores of probably hundreds, in fact, of healthcare professionals who have embraced this, either with our help or independently, have, have recognised a problem, have seen the solution that ANTT can provide with a bit of investment and organisation in time and effort, and it, it's grown organically. What I uh, recognised quite early on when things really started to take off was that um, it needed supporting centrally in some way. It, it needed further developing, it needed disseminating, resources needed to be made, people need to be assessed and taught how to implement this across organisation. So I um, did this initially myself and very quickly, probably 10 or 15 years ago, realised that I couldn't do that myself. So. I made a decision that I wanted to remain doing the job I do today, but I wanted to run this as well. So I set up an organisation called the ASAP, which is the Association for Aseptic Practice, and created a network of like-minded individuals to work in their respected geographical areas and lead on this and report back as a, you know, created a board and so on and built the project like that. We obviously developed a website and we have people who pretty much 24-7 answer questions via email or telephone every day on how to implement ANTT or how to deal with a particular practice issue. So all the guidance is online, is it? People so all the guidance is online, yeah. And how would they get hold of that? So the website's www.antt.org. That's the start point. That will tell you about the project. It will show you what resources there are. Oh, it gives yeah. you a place to email in, and then you immediately can get a link to a whole raft of what we call the free core resources for ANTT, because it's important that ANTT can be implemented freely. We also, as an organisation, have to create a modest income stream to make resources and have people on the end of telephones and emails 24-7. Uh, so we have an offering of very subsidised resources which are a bit more comprehensive, like e-learning and so mm. on. Mm. And this is run by the ASAP, which is a, a non-profit uh, organisation run by clinicians and led by myself. So I guess it's in the path of least resistance now. You'd have to kind of really be swimming against the tide to not take on ANTT in the UK now. And internationally? Yeah, I think I would absolutely concur with what you've just said, Gavin, because I think we've now got to a point where introducing something else would not only be stupid, it would be potentially, if not likely, to be harmful to patients. Do you mean trying to find some other way. Like another way niche way of doing yes. it without yes. that has no yeah. sort of... Yeah. evidence base and yeah yeah, yeah. because what ANT did as I say has done has just put down that first foundation we can now talk to each other 
in a way that is meaningful. And what's probably one of the most rewarding things that I've seen over the last five years in particular is that more and more we see publications published in places far around the world. And people may be talking about some research around uh, TPN usage or NG insertions or intravenous therapy or wound care. But the aseptic technique bit, which is essentially the methodology of their research, whatever that may be, is now meaningful because they say we're, we're doing ATT, they clarify that they are doing ATT and the reader knows exactly what they mean when they say surgical ANTT or standard ANTT. Whereas before, if somebody did some research in that area, you'd be thinking, well, what do they actually mean by a sterile technique? Because we know that's got very many different terms. So obviously ANTT isn't the utopia, but it was the first foundation step. And I think we have a, an obligation as a healthcare community internationally to build on that. It's one thing to have a foundation of, and, and have the education pool, if you like, right, but it's a, another challenge altogether on how you get staff to actually do something every time, on every occasion, for every patient. And that's probably what we as an association advise most organisations on, is how you get that magical compliance. I was reading that you've, you've done some work abroad in kind yeah. of different places that you would, with less, you know, less kind of equipment, yeah. less, yeah. you know. We've just also recently, in the last two years, have broached out into the humanitarian care sector. So we've worked with humanitarian organisations, probably the most well-known would be MSF, mm -hmm. uh, Medicine Sun Frontier, I never can pronounce that right. They're yeah. probably one of the biggest humanitarian organisations. I think they're bigger than Oxfam and UNICEF and they're French-based but have an international reach. So we started a project with them over a few years and my colleague Simon has uh, done a number of... Um, He's been to Syria? Yeah, he's done a number of places, site yeah. visits. Wow. Which were tough for a Westerner without that background and training to go and be dropped into. So Simon, to his great credit, he was dropped into UN camps for refugees. And he's gone to a number. Uh, the first one he did was in uh, South Sudan. And it was a UN camp that was built for 30 thousand refugees that actually three years later had 135,000 refugees and um, being serviced medically by a small room or two. One of the first things Simon noticed was every time these guys set up an IV tray there'd be like sand blowing through the, the building and, and it was very very dusty so what the staff were doing was almost trying to imitate a Western approach to aseptic techniques. They'd kind Taking of it out have of a, a packet. Yeah, they would kind yeah. of take their syringes out of a packet, discard the packets and put the, the syringes down on these rather dirty trays. They yeah. couldn't clean because they didn't have disinfectant. And Simon just pointed out that actually the key principle of ANTT is it's about focusing on the individual key parts and protecting them individually. And he said, use those packets you're now discarding. Once you've made up the drug up, put the drug back into the packet and you've instantly got a protector of a key part, protecting that key part from the three ways in which key parts can get contaminated, from touch by hands, touch by anything else, and through airborne. So it was cost effective, it was free, it was transformational, done in a stroke, and that alone made that project worthwhile, but there's a lot more to that in terms of teaching local staff to, to be able to sustain it, and so on. And yeah, Simon's been to other challenging places like Syria, and, and so on. With the sort of national uptake and international momentum now, is it have we reached the tipping point for ANTT? 
in terms of uptake? It does feel a little bit like we're either approaching a tipping point or have just gone over the tipping point. Mm -hmm. uh, the momentum on the project in the last three years has been particularly fast and it just gets faster and faster and it's been hard to keep pace with it and support it. America has been a particular target for us for a long time. So we're currently working with a body called INS, which is uh, a society that creates a peer-reviewed, exhaustive practice review every three years and produces the infusion standards, so standards for infusion care. And these are read widely and lots of organisations use these worldwide. So they, they've actually asked us to be on the editorial board. We're already on that and are writing away five or six chapters for that around infection prevention with ANTD being one, but also interweave throughout the whole standard. So that particular resource and organisation has great reach in the States. And similarly, last week we uh, launched a standard, or should I say the American Vascular Access Society, which is, a, and again, a huge society, which is, just, it is wider than infusion therapy. It's about uh, central line insertions and everything to do with vascular care. has launched a paper, which we wrote with them, which basically says they are encouraging all their members to implement ANTT. So these sort of projects in countries like America are well overdue, very timely, and we think if we're not at that tipping point now, we're probably about to be. If there's one thing you could you could uh, say now is your platform to every nurse using ANTT, then what, what would that be? Well, it would be to every healthcare professional, nurse, doctor, uh, allied healthcare professional. I think it would be don't underestimate this problem. And this is everyone's problem. This isn't something for organisations to solve. This is about everyone looking at their own personal practice and their own professional accountability. And every time you go to a patient and do anything invasive, whether that's brain surgery or something as straightforward as a simple wound care procedure, think about the very real risk that you pose to that patient because you're the one now who's most likely to introduce a contaminant into that patient and cause them an infection which could either harm them or kill them. Uh, and, and I don't mean to be alarmist, but that's the reality. Healthcare acquired infections create morbidity and mortality. So think about what you can do, get that practice right, and of course come to ANTT if you want some support uh, with that, either individually or for your organisation. And thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Thank you.